Welcome to a brand new series of What Happens Next. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. This time on the podcast, we're looking at fake news. Fake news has played a role in a series of recent events, including the US elections, Australia's bushfire disaster, and the COVID-19 outbreak. We're talking to experts about what happens if we don't do something to stop fake news and misinformation campaigns, what role social media platforms play, and why public interest journalism is critical to democracy. We'll also get their best tips for avoiding fake news and what we can all do to get better quality information. I think it's a disgrace that information that was false and fake and never happened got released to the public. Uh, a lot of the information that is out there and I just simply appeal to media to ensure that they're going to the, the official sources of advice and uh, not reporting Twitter as if it's news or anything like that because it's not, it's not real. Don't it's, be, it's, it's no, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Australia's bushfire disaster, Russian interference in the US election and now COVID-19 have generated major misinformation campaigns led by social media and picked up by mainstream news. During the bushfires, for example, researchers at Queensland University of Technology discovered that many social media accounts pushing disinformation about the bushfires were actually bots. And then amplifying these messages were agenda-driven print and TV outlets taking their cues from the online frenzy. In this episode, Monash School of Media, Film and Journalism experts Mark Andreevich and Johan Lidberg ponder the possibility of a future where verifying information becomes almost impossible. Joining us first is media expert Mark Andreevich. I'm Mark Andreevich. I'm a professor of media studies in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University. And I write about the social, cultural and political impact of digital media technology. Professor Mark Andreevich, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. When we actually talk about fake news or disinformation campaigns or even alternate facts, what do we actually mean? Well, it's interesting how that term has changed in its use, and Donald Trump probably gets some credit for that. Uh, you know, originally fake news starts as a critique of news that's considered to be inaccurate, misleading, misinformation or disinformation. It's become a term that's used now to dismiss any news that you don't like. Uh, and so when Donald Trump says fake news, that doesn't mean that it's factually wrong. That means that he just doesn't like it or doesn't I like the question. It. I reject it. I don't accept it. Uh, and then that's become a rallying cry for those supporters. So in general, I try to stay away from that term fake news and use misinformation or disinformation instead. You know, the danger is when you start talking about fake news, then it looks a little bit like you're talking like Trump is and dismissing the things that you don't like or or dis, uh, you know or you disagree with. Um, but so, but it originally has that that you know, quite straightforward meaning that this is inaccurate, but that's changed because of the public discourse. It's almost like no one can really agree on what's accurate anymore. What even is true news? This is the anxiety of our moment. You know, the institutions that we relied upon and the practices and procedures that we could, 
you know, engage in in order to come to some way of adjudicating between what's uh, true and what's not, what we'll have as our shared reality and what we'll dismiss, those are all in crisis. Uh, and, you know, I, th I think there are a variety of causes for that, but certainly the online information environment is one of them. If you can go online and you can find uh, all the material that you want to support your counterfactual view, that helps you uh, just put out a flood of information and say, uh, you know, who's to decide between all of this? I'll decide what I want. I'll pick the information that I want. And so I think what's really crucial is I think we're going to have to engage in that process of reinventing, rediscovering, and recreating the institutions and the procedures that we need in order to adjudicate between what's accurate and what's not, what's factual and what's not. How do we do that when we are also living in a time where trust in institutions has never been lower? It's not going to be an easy task. My anxiety or my worry is that we're going to have to really experience what happens when you sacrifice or no longer have those institutions or practices in place. Uh, and, you know, we may be headed there, right? And it's not a, um, it's not a pretty picture, but it's, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's going to be an, an easy task. And if you look historically, coming up with shared systems for adjudicating what counts as reality that we can all agree upon, those go through long-term crises and require maybe 100 years of or 200 years of struggle before new systems emerge. If you think about maybe the rise of the scientific paradigm uh, that, you know, it took place after several hundred years of warfare uh, in order to figure out, well, what might it mean if we could imagine a society in which we could deliberate about reality instead of fighting about it? But it's not, you know, that's a relatively short historical interval. And right. it... Um, and, 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 you know, we exist under, under different conditions now. That's what I was going to say. It's, yeah. it's a different system as well. Now we exist in this fully globalized world where, you know, you might try some procedure in one place. It's not going to work somewhere else. So you would end up having to imagine some global possibility of uh, developing institutions like this. I also don't think we can go back, right? That's, that's the, uh, you know, historically things move along. And, you, and if you say, no, I, we want to resuscitate I don't know, some shared notion of the Enlightenment or, uh, I don't know, some shared um, universal religious uh, um, way of thinking about the world. But I'm not sure we can go back mm -hmm. that way. We have, mm. We're going to have to move forward instead. Yeah. yeah, move forward into a direction of something. None of us really know what that looks like. So it's very difficult to know if we're even going in the right direction. Yeah, the direction at the moment doesn't look very good. When I, when you know, we're in this moment of um, this information about coronavirus spreading around and I look at the things that people are putting up there and I'm thinking, oh my God. Seems like there's this human instinct in these moments to sort of go to the almost absurd. Why do you think humans seem to have an inclination towards quote unquote fake news or disinformation? Why, why can't we sort of calmly assess the fact? I think about what's going on in the U.S. and it's quite pathological there, the unwillingness to recognize the shared forms of social interdependence that make society possible. You know, the, the mythos of the United States is built on a version of rugged individualism, which has been adapted to the contemporary logics of, you know, neoliberal individualism. Right. And, the, and the message there is, 
you know, you are on your own. You're not, in, you, you know, you're not interdependent on others. It's your responsibility. Uh, and technology that reproduces or reinforces that one-sidedness, I think, leads to this feeling, on the one hand, a fantasy of, you know, kind of individual power, uh, and on the other hand, an anxiety about these forms of interdependence that also that tends to make people you know, to create antipathy towards others, right? And so, so what, what does that have to do with misinformation or disinformation? Well, it encourages, I think, people to see truths that they don't like or truths that they disagree with as impositions that others are imposing upon them that actually curtail their autonomy. <laughs> and, you know, their freedom. their freedom. Their freedom is to decide their world. Yeah. And if you tell them, no, you're wrong, uh, actually, here's the evidence, here's the science. We have social systems that have developed to address your incorrect view of the world. That's described as elitism and an, incur you know, an incursion on uh, their autonomy and in independence. Going back to this matter of disinformation, what role do you think mainstream and social media need to play in, in correcting this uh, disinformation confusion? You know, probably my number one concern in response to the role that social media play in misinformation, disinformation, is to look at the economic model that drives them. What we've done is we've turned over our information environment to a fully commercialized structure whose priorities are not public service. That's not their role, right? Their role is to make money. That's what commercial entities do. And that's why we've learned that the algorithmic systems that they use to shape our information environment are driven by imperatives that do not have public interest uh, or the public good at heart. And this is the moment that we're encountering now with the kind of backlash against Facebook and uh, other social media platforms. We realize, wait, you're shaping our information environment, and it's important to note that they're shaping it. it. You know, when you go on Google or when you go on Facebook or Instagram, you kind of imagine that you're seeing some natural feed, but you're not. There's too much information. It has to be sculpted. And how it's sculpted is according to what information, based on the huge amounts of data they have, is the information that's most likely to foster engagement and sharing. If you, priori if you prioritize engagement and sharing, you're not necessarily prioritizing truth, accuracy, civic information. You're not prioritizing the things that you would want to prioritize in an information system for a healthy democratic society. Uh, and so we, I think probably step one is revisiting the economic model that sacrifices the notions of public interest and public good to purely commercial imperatives. And this is not unique to social media. I come from the US where commercial media has been dominant for a long time. And, you, and it's interesting to see that shift. I, I also worked in journalism. So I've had some experience, you know, firsthand seeing what it means to work in a commercial media environment. I was working in a print newspaper. And the interesting thing about the print newspaper, um, and I think much of, you know, even broadcast era um, broadcasting in the U.S. was there was a notion of a public interest and a public good even in those commercial platforms. They understood that they had a civic role to play as well as a commercial role. Now what's happened is 
thanks to the rise of online platforms, a lot of the local media is dying out and being killed. Their commercial models don't work anymore. The local folks who were doing local coverage of people they knew and you know places they cared about, those people don't have the forum that they once had. And instead, we have these you know, platforms that come in and people find online communities and connections that may not have anything to do with their local community and the people they live alongside with, but maybe it's some community of interest that they find online. And maybe it's one that doesn't really care at all about their local community. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's one that's interested in, you know, getting them all excited about conspiracy theories. And that's an interesting way to spend their time. And it displaces reading about what's going on in their community. And you lose the social and civic role that the information institutions that we had once had. Also, I think it's important to note that the folks who run these tech platforms, they don't come out of a history, many, mm. many of them, they don't come out of a history or tradition of thinking about the role that news and information play in a democratic society. They come out of a startup tech culture, right, which doesn't necessarily have any commitment or interest in those questions. You have somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, right, he's he now has, you know, one of the largest media platforms in the world, unprecedented to have that type of reach globally for a media organization. But he started out wanting to make money off of an app that was basically, you know, rate people if they're hot or not. Mm. He, he didn't start with any kind of civic commitment or some notion of, you know, what information means in a democratic society. It's like, how can you make money with a, you know, with a tech platform? Well, then, you, then how realistic is it then for us to ask our social media platforms to move away from the purely commercial model of sell ads, get more information, keep people engaged, and instead tell them the news and information that they need to know from trusted sources, which won't be as lucrative. Is it really realistic to expect that to happen? No, I don't think so. I think what we need to do is imagine alternatives to the economic structure that we have. I think, you know, one of the things, when if we think about how do we rebuild institutions that we need uh, to be able to function as a society, I think one of the things we need to consider very seriously is what does it mean to take a public service tradition that's quite well developed in a country like Australia uh, and to imagine what, it, what would it mean to have a public service social media platform? What would it mean to have a public service media organization that was able to span the forms of media that have become those that people that shape the information environment that we have? That's not an easy thing to envision, right? Because we know already, you know, what the kids like or what they're on or, you know, what you know, what people find addictive. It's, you know, to try to say, yeah, well, important civic information is going to be as engaging um, and that people are going to spend as much time with it as they do on TikTok is, is you know, is that's a big ask, right? What you, what you have to do is at the same time also foster a sense of civic awareness and engagement and commitment on the part of the population, right? So I think media and education have to work hand in hand, is that right? So um, you, I, I don't think it would be possible to fix things by saying, well, we'll have, you know, like a public service social media platform and that will provide accurate information and everybody will go pay attention to it. No, they, they won't. Mm. <laughs> um, but what we have to do is also, and again, this is something I think about a lot is an educator, how, how do you build a sense of civic commitment and a sense of inter, of societal interdependence that are gonna that's gonna make people engage 
in and be interested in the information that really shapes their lives in ways that, you know, the forms of easy, uh, you know, dopamine inducing entertainment on social media don't. But that's a big ask. Right? Yeah. Like, I'm not optimistic about any of this. Stuff, yeah. Right? <laughs> oh, you good. know, I, I'm, you know, I think I think those things would have to happen in order to have a better outcome. But I don't think those things will necessarily happen unless we really um, are smart enough to anticipate the impact of what happens if we don't, or are unfortunate enough to encounter the impact of what happens if, if you don't imagine an alternative. The, the goal is to get enough people who can imagine the possibility of what political change might be to act, not to get everybody, but to get a balance of, of popular will. Mark Andreevic, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Johan Lidberg sees the role of freedom of information as crucial in this discussion. Unfortunately, due to COVID, we've had to adapt and do a number of these interviews by phone. So while occasionally the audio isn't as great as always, we promise you the content is. My name is Associate Professor Johan Lidberg in the School of Media, Film and Journalism um, at Monash University, and I'm also the Deputy Head of Journalism. Johan Lidberg, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start by asking you, what do you see as the connection between freedom of information and fake news? How do they relate to each other? If we have freedom of information or access to information, as we also call it in a broader term, functioning well so that it provides independent access to government-held information, then you have the, the option for anyone, including audience, public, listeners, journalists, um, political opposition to verify and cross-check claims that are being made that they think is a bit uh, dubious. Uh, so that's, I would say, the most important connection and function of a far-reaching access information system. So a sort of a fact-checking yeah, capacity. Yeah, so it means that if it, if it, if it works well, if um, government-held information is, is uh, easily discoverable, which is a huge issue because sometimes it isn't, then it's much easier for people to become their own fact checkers and to become more simply media and information literate. Do you think also it could be when there is uh, reduced media freedom, people start to become a bit uh, paranoid about the information they're getting or decide, well, I don't know how much I can trust what's being given to me, so I need to sort of sort it out for myself? Usually people live, everyone lives incredibly busy lives, you know, whether you are doesn't matter what you work and, and what you do if you've got a family if you've got a working life and then you've got kids sports and all that sort of stuff it's, it's a big ask to to ask the people to sit down and become their own fact checkers some probably do but i suspect they're in, in the uh in the in the minority i would say what role do you think mainstream media outlets should be playing um in tackling the scourge of fake news so the way i see it is that the future for professional journalism, and I'm, I'm a really big fan of, you know, collaborative collaborations between the audience, the public and professional journalists. I think that's really important. But we can never ask of the citizen journalists and others to, uh, you know, come up with original reporting because, again, they have day jobs most mm. of them, right? So I see the future part of a really important task in the future for professional journalism and legacy media is to become those verifiers and curators and make sure that they absolutely do not republish stuff that they haven't verified properly. So that's going to be one of the most important tasks I find. And also 
a really good trust builder with their audience at home. What role then would you say for social media? We're hearing recently about, in, amongst all this COVID-19 with people being sent home uh, from work, mm. places like Facebook, Twitter, uh, other social media platforms have had to send most of their staff home. So they're now relying on artificial intelligence mm. to, to monitor news sources. And what's been found is sometimes accidentally they've been blocking correct news sources but letting the fake ones flourish mm. because it's having a machine doing that. What impact does that have and what responsibility do social media platforms have? So there is actually quite, quite, a, quite a, a clear way ahead here and that is that, that social media platforms own up to being publishers. If they do that, they will then have to adhere to you know, the full legal frameworks, the full ethical frameworks that all publishers have to adhere to. Right now, they're getting away, um, they're getting around this by saying, well, we're not the publisher. The people that publish on our platforms are the publishers. So they're getting around, getting around that. And that is hugely problematic because that then means that they can pretty much let anything go. So they are suffering through the so-called tech lash now, which we saw after Cambridge Analytica and those things in, in Brexit and the 2016 US election. But they have a huge responsibility and a major role. And it's really twofold. One is you know, their role in our democratic system is to make sure that they don't undermine it the way that they do now. We clearly saw both their role in Brexit and their role in um, US 2016 undermined, you know, the functionality of liberal democracies. And the second one is financial, that they're also undermining the old ad market. You know? mm-hmm. So they have such a huge responsibility and they are clearly not owning up to it now. And you can see that lots of people are bitterly disappointed in that. Why do you think fake news is proliferating now? I mean, obviously, we have the mechanics for it. People are online more. We have social media. But it also requires people being willing to believe it in the first place. Why is this happening now? Well, fake news, as I'm sure everyone is is aware, it has been around for a long, long time, probably for as long as we've told stories. You know, it's just fake news. It's just a new new term for misinformation, disinformation, and so on. So the, the main difference, yes. So the main difference now compared to, say, the 1930s in Europe is that we do have the ultra-fast spread of information and it's turbocharged by all the platform and all the social media sharing and so on. Uh, one, to answer your question, which connects back to your previous one about AI being moderated and so on, if the platforms would own up to become publishers, we would see much less fake news. But it's quite tricky. The AIs, I'm sure, eventually will will become good editors and publishers, but they have quite a long way to go. And we could see that in that example that you were citing before, that they aren't ready yet, you know. Mm. And so if the platforms own up to be publishers, it's going to cost them a lot of money. And I, I'm a bit of a cynic. I think that's why they haven't, because if they say, okay, we're publishers, they're going to have to hire a lot of editorial staff to curate and be a proper publisher. And I think that's one of the reasons why it is spreading so fast, that had they owned up to being publishers, we would have had much, much less of that stuff. Then why people believe it, again, I don't think people have time to check. How much of a problem do you think fake news is at the moment? I think it's absolutely major and I think it's, I think it's, 
the biggest problem I think is that the term is used by leaders that should know better. You know, so coined by the fake uh, newser in, in chief in the White House, and then he legitimizes the term, and then everyone thinks it's okay to use to the point where fake news it goes to goes to full circle. You know, so things that were fake news is then for proliferated fake news and then it becomes real news and then it goes around again and becomes fake news. So it's a really good example of what's done uh, this inquiry in the UK after the Brexit election uh, into fake news where that report actually uh, made the recommendation which was taken up by the UK Parliament that the term fake news should not be used in the chamber. So mm. they've stopped using it. And I think that's a really good example and we should try to limit the use of the term fake news overall because it is undermining the very fabric of our liberal democratic society. So I, I think I think the liberal in democracy is under the pump around the globe, actually. Paint me a picture. We are 50 years into the future. No one mm. has been able or willing to rein in fake news and it's gotten mm. even worse than it is now. Mm. What does the world look like? So I think it's impossible to ponder that without thinking about AI, artificial intelligence. And 50 years into the future, provided that uh, quantum computers come online reasonably soon, which I'm pretty sure they will, which will, that's going to be the big, big break for AI. That's going to up their capacity to learn and to process to a point where that we can't even comprehend. But I'm thinking maybe the AIs will become so potent at reining in fake news if we let them, that that could be our best shot at um, getting some sort of handle on it. Um, another one would be, of course, that we finally managed to convince uh, Facebook and the others, others that they are publishers. But if we can't rein it in, it's going to undermine, in my view, our trust in pretty much everything. Johan Lidberg, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Clearly, something needs to change. But on the next episode, we'll chat with people who are tackling disinformation campaigns head on. Thanks to our guests today, Mark Andreevich and Johan Lidberg. That's it for this episode. More information on what we discussed can be found in the show notes. And if you like these episodes, please write us a review. Five stars only. This helps other people find the show. And you can also let us know the topics you'd like us to look at in our crystal ball for maybe the next series. We'd love to hear your suggestions. I'll catch you next time on What Happens Next.